Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, What is the Church? Many think of the church as a building or organization, but scripture teaches something far different. The church is the community of God's people who gather for worship, love, and care for one another and serve God's purposes in the world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to do something a little bit different as we start. We did not put it because it's an entire chapter. We did not bother putting it in the notes, uh, in the little booklet. Um, what I decided I'm going to do is I want you to kind of imagine with me you were a Christian being persecuted in the first century uh, for having left Judaism, actually, uh, because that's what's going on with this group. And so they received this letter, uh, the letter that we call the letter to the Hebrews, that somebody had written to them, and you would have been sitting there and listening to it being read to you. That's how it happened in the New Testament church. You didn't get to read along. You didn't have a a Bible and open up to the book of Hebrews, you just listen to it being read. So what I'm going to do is, because this is a long passage, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11 to us right now. And I want you just to imagine for a minute what it was like to listen and to hear these words being spoken to you as you were again suffering for the faith, because this group of Christians was suffering for their faith. So I encourage you to uh, hear now the word of the living God. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people 
were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are not that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeering and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These all were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. 
God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. May God bless the reading of his word. Now I'm going to come back to what it was probably like to you to hear that. Does anybody here think they know what the theme of that chapter was? Was there, was there a word that, that kind of kept coming back up? See, this is not subtlety. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want to talk about also the idea that was woven throughout there that because they were God's people by faith, they were also aliens and strangers in the world. And one of the things that I was thinking about as I was meditating on this text this week is I've been fortunate to be in many, many different countries on mission trips. And places as different as Mexico, from Bangladesh and India to Egypt, uh, to Niger, Africa, wildly different places. But one thing that's in common in, in many of them is when I go there, they all seem strange to me. And I think, wow, what a different place this is. But of course, none of them think it's strange. They think I'm strange. I don't look like they look. I don't wear the clothes they wear. I don't speak the language they speak. I don't eat the food that they eat. I am, in fact, an alien, a stranger among them. And I can actually even remember in, uh, in Niger, we were out in a very remote village where they had rarely, if ever, seen people with white skin. And the kids kept rubbing my arms until they were rubbed raw, trying to figure out what was wrong. Like, I needed to be put back in the oven. Clearly, I was not done yet. Okay? I was very alien to them. But here's a reality for us, and what Hebrews 11 is ultimately really about. Faith is actually not the deep point in Hebrews 11. The real point is, if you are a Christian, you are alien to the rest of this world. If you are living by faith, the rest of this world looks at you like those little kids in Niger looked at me. You look alien. You look strange. You, you may here in America even be wearing clothing that is kind of similar, though hopefully maybe you're not with some of the clothing we wear today. You may speak English, but your language is different. There are things you simply will not say that the culture accepts as okay. Your morals are different. Your worldview is different. And if it is not, if this culture around us does not look at us and say, you all are strange, friends, that's an indictment upon us and upon our faith. Because the message that's being spoken here in Hebrews 11 is, if you are the people of God by faith, how should you expect this world to respond? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive in. Now notice, here in Hebrews 11, and he begins with this, we are God's exile people of faith. We are first, and I remind us, we've come up with this many times in this series on the church, we are God's people by faith in Christ. In Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, right here at the beginning of the chapter, we read, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This 
is what the ancients were commended for. The writer is explaining to these Christians who are being tempted to abandon their Christian faith and to go back to Judaism because it would be easier, because the Jews weren't being persecuted, but the Christians were. And the writer says, don't you understand the heroes you read about in the Old Testament were God's people, not by being Jewish, but by faith. That is how they became the people of God. It has always been by faith. Now, you all laughed when I even asked, what's the focus of the chapter? I mean, you can't go more than a couple of words without the writer saying, by faith. And it's a catalog of looking through the scripture at all of these things that are being done. And he's letting us know that when we look at them, we may think how great these people were, how courageous they were, all these other characteristics. But the writer to Hebrews says, here's the characteristic that defines them it is faith. It has never been possible. From Genesis 1:26, when God created Adam and Eve, it has never been possible for a human being to know God, love God, be in relationship with God apart from faith. Notice the categorical statement in verse 6. Without faith, it is what? Impossible. Not difficult. Not it's a harder way to get in. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So read the story of anyone who pleases God. There must be faith. This is not a New Testament thing. It is not a New Covenant thing. Old Testament people were not God's people by their birth, by their blood, by their works. They were God's people by faith, or they were not God's people at all. If you go back and you think, and you can see this, actually Paul reasons on this, Isaac was not Abraham's only son, but he was the heir, and he's the heir by faith. He was no more Abraham's son than Ishmael was but he was the heir because he was in the covenant by faith. Jake, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're equally the sons, but it's not blood birth that makes you part of the people of God. Never has been, never will be. It is always by faith. So I quickly but urgently appeal to you if you are here today, are you in a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be part of his people. You, you're not in by choosing to sit out here in the field on a Sunday morning. You're not in by choosing to gather with us when we meet inside. You are not in by being a pastor, it doesn't, a missionary. None of that gets you in. It is only faith in Christ. Do we believe? That is the question. Now, the outflow of that, that the writer to Hebrews wants us to know is, because we are God's people by faith, we have always been exiles in the world. That's why faith is the surface thing that Hebrews 11 is about, but in the whole book of Hebrews, it's serving the purpose to say, don't you understand, God's people of faith have always been exiles in the world. There never was a time that they weren't. So in verses nine and 10, of Hebrews 11, we read, speaking of Abraham, by faith, he made his home in the promised land 
like a stranger in a foreign country. That, that's a strange phrase. Don't just read by that. The land God promised him, the land on oath that God said, I pass between the pieces, Abraham, this is yours as surely as I am God and I cannot lie and I have taken a covenant oath, this is your land. Still, nonetheless, Abraham lived there like an alien and a stranger. He lived there like one who was in exile in the promised land. We're told he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Friends, if you read the Old Testament and you think Abraham's interest was that little sliver of land around the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, you don't know how to read the Old Testament. The writer to Hebrews tells us he wasn't interested in that land. He was interested in an eternal city. He was interested in a city that, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Jerusalem in Palestine is built by people. The new Jerusalem is built by God. And Abraham is looking forward to that. And this is not just true of Abraham, the writer to Hebrews. He's writing this to these suffering Christians who are being tempted to abandon the way because the cost is too high. And the writer says, don't you understand? It has always been this way. It's not just a few people. God's people have always been aliens and exiles. So in verses 13 to 16, he tells us all these people. And he does this, he's saying, it's not just Abraham, it's not just Isaac and Jacob, it's everybody that I've gone over and everybody I'm going to talk about. To be the people of God is this, you are living by faith when you die. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, they are looking for the new heavens and the new earth. They are looking for the new Jerusalem. That was what characterized all of God's people, always has, always will. So the first point the writer to Hebrews wants us to understand is the church is the community of those who are God's people through faith in Christ and therefore are exiles in this world. This is what we were looking at last week. There's two choices and only two and you can't have both. You are either at home in this world and alienated from God, cut off from grace and mercy, or you are in Christ and you are God's people and the recipient of all God's covenant blessings and part of the people of God by the mercy of Christ and therefore you are an alien, you are a stranger, you are an exile, not at home in this world. And all of that has nothing to do with whether you liked what happened last Tuesday or don't like it. Whether you like what happens with the latest thing the Supreme Court says or don't like it. Whether you are living in America or whether you're living in Nigeria that we were praying for earlier or whether you are living in China, it is equally true because they are all Babylon and you are in exile. And our home is an eternal city that is built by God. 
So that's the first point. Now the question is then, if we are aliens and exiles, then how do we expect the world to treat us? How, you know, the little kids in Niger came up and touched my skin and wanted to hear me talk and were trying to figure out who I was. They were curious. Should we expect the world to treat us as a curiosity object or should we expect something different? Well, I'm here to bring you some bad news to start with, which is that what you should expect is suffering, alienation, and persecution. That's what God's people should expect. That is how this world treats aliens and strangers, those who are other. Now, why do I say this? The, the writer brings it out in multiple ways. First, he says, at best, at best, God's exiled people suffer a sense of homelessness. At best, they are like, this is not home. This is not where I want to be. I remember when I first moved up here uh, to come to the Naval Academy, Annapolis was a little different than the place I grew up. Just a little bit different, because I grew up in the middle of nowhere in rural Georgia, you know, long way away from anything like the Chesapeake Bay. And I got to tell you, the first year, man, it was homesickness. And things that I now love about Annapolis back then, I was like, man, I would trade all of that and a thousand dollars too just to be back in Woodbury, Georgia. I was homeless. I, 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 I was struggling with that. And what we are told is that is how you feel perpetually or we ought to. Notice again in verses 13 and 14 where it's, you know, all these people are doing this. And here's what it says. They admitted that they were aliens and they were strangers on earth. Notice it's not just whatever that they were in a particular country. It's on earth. This present fallen world leaves those who are living by faith feeling homeless. And he goes on in verse 14 and says, people who sow such things uh, show that they are looking for a country of their own. In other words, we're looking around and saying, no matter how pleasant it is here, and trust me, I, I love Annapolis. I'm so glad God called me to this place to serve him. But it's still not home. There is still always, even in the best of times, there's a sense of homelessness and alienation because no country can be our true home. So to be part of God's people by faith of necessity entails a sense of alienation from our culture and produces a longing that this world cannot fill. If you want to feel completely at home, if you want to have all your longings fulfilled in this life, then don't be a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to accept that will not be the case. But there's more. It gets worse. Not only do we experience a sense of homelessness within ourselves, God's exiled people suffer hostility and persecution. If you noticed in verses 24 and 25, we're reading about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures for a short time. See, when Moses woke up one day, 
and realized my identity is not the son of Pharaoh's daughter. My identity is part of the people of God. I am part of God's covenant people. Moses realized right then, then that means I can't be both. I can't be at home in Egypt. I can't walk that way and with the people of God. So it says, notice the word, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Now that does not mean Moses walked into Pharaoh and said, hey, start persecuting me. It does mean that when he chose to be part of the people of God, he knew that was his lot. It was the way things were going to be. And so uh, for Moses, it meant he can no longer simply identify as the son of Pharaoh. He's now alien and exile from the court where he was being raised as the son of Pharaoh. He had it the best it could possibly be. And he realized, I can't, that's not my identity. If we fully uh, embrace our identity as Christians, it will inevitably mean that we deny parts of how our culture identifies us. Our culture, every day, make no mistake, is trying to mold and shape you and me and tell you who you are. And it is not possible to be walking with Christ faithfully and to say, yep, 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 everything the culture is telling me is true. It is mandated that I will have to say, and trust me, it will usually be at the points that the culture cares the most about. And I have to say, that's not me. Can't go there, won't go there, won't be part of that. That is not who I am. And then the really bad news is we have to tell them sometimes, and that's also not who you are. The culture does not say, oh, tell me more. The response is exactly what it was for Moses. And notice it goes on and says that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. To be part of God's people is to refuse the pleasures of sin, and it inevitably leads to conflict with the culture, which means we get mistreated. Because we're saying, I will not participate in that. I will not be part of that because it's not the way God wants me to walk. And the culture says, this is not sinful. This is actually positively righteous and good. You must embrace this. Make no mistake, friends, that is where it is at. It is consistent. I suspect it's only going to get more this way. It's going to be more apparent for us in days and weeks and months and years ahead for us, particularly fast forward a few years, it is probably going to be extensively that way for us. And what we need to realize is that's nothing unusual. That's the way it's always been. We have bought into the idea that coming to Jesus gives you your best life now. Not according to Hebrews 11. Not according to the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That is not the case. To quote one preacher, if you're enjoying your best life now, then you're going to hell. That's the only way it's possible you're getting your best life now. Guaranteed as a Christian, your best life is ahead of you, no matter how pleasant it is here now. But to be a Christian means you forfeit what could be your best life now because you agree to be an alien to be a stranger to be not at home 
And it's not unusual. It's not exceptional. It is the consistent experience of the people of God through the ages. Did you notice that the writer to Hebrews says, I'm going to run through a catalog here, and he goes all the way back to Abel. I mean, there's only one generation further he could have gone back. He goes all the way back and says, don't you understand? When Abel walked with God, when Abel gave a sacrifice and worshiped God by faith, and Cain wanted to do it the way Cain wanted to do it, that ended up with Cain doing what? Persecuting and killing his brother. So the writer starts there, and he's saying that that's the way it is with us. And he goes all the way through basically the Old Testament and says, don't you understand every last one of these people, this was their experience. You Hebrew Christians who are living probably in Rome and you are suffering for your faith, this is nothing new. It is the way it has always been. Because, see, the culture is like Cain. When it is faced with God's displeasure, it has two choices. I can repent and change, or I can persecute the people who are under God's pleasure. Guess which one the culture chooses? It does just like Cain. You know, there's an old saying, when, you know, when the prophet comes, and in the book of Amos it talks about dropping the plumb line. When the prophet drops the plumb line and says your wall's crooked, there's two choices. You tear down the wall and rebuild it, or you kill the prophet. Which one's easier? Getting rid of the prophet's easier. It's wrong, but it's easier. And it's what our culture does again and again. And so throughout the whole chapter, make no mistake, there is a sense of being separate from the surrounding culture. And notice how the chapter ends. See, as we were going along and you're reading, it's like, man, this is awesome. These guys are delivered out of the mouths of lions and they get thrown into the fire and, and the flames are quenched and God delivers them from all of this. But that's not where the writer ends. Here's where he ends, verses 35 to 38. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. That's homeless. That's... But that's how the writer ends. See, you can sell a billion books if you tell people, if you got faith, you'll always be delivered. If you got faith, you'll never be sick. If you've got faith, you will drive the best, have the best, live the best. But see, according to this, if you got faith, you may be living in a hole in the ground wearing sheepskin or goatskin because you have faith. Not because you don't, but because you do. So this chapter begins and ends on strong notes of persecution. And it's important for us to understand when, when Johnny stood up here earlier, if you haven't ever talked with him, talk with him about what it's like to be there in Nigeria and to talk to a woman who watched her son get hacked to death in front of her very eyes. Friends, this is the lot of millions of Christians. 
Thanks be to God, the church understands this better. When I first started seeing the persecuted church 25 years ago, and I would talk to Christians, they were like, yeah, persecution was terrible, man, the way the Romans used to treat Christians. But do you know more Christians are suffering and dying now, today, than ever did in the Roman Empire? All around the globe. And that's not because they lack faith. It's because they have faith. And we are called to expect that and also to support them. So the recipients of this letter are being persecuted for their faith and they're attempting to, you know, they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. That's why the writer is writing all this and saying, don't you understand? Yes, it's a, it's a struggle for you right now. It's always been a struggle for the people of God. And then there's a third point that the writer makes, which is that the people of God have to persevere through suffering. See, the temptation for the Hebrew Christians and the temptation for you and me is that I'm just not going to do that because if they're going to persecute me for doing it, I'll just keep my faith in my heart. But see, the writer says you, you can't do that. You have to power up and you have to persevere through the suffering. So notice in verse 35, others were tortured and refused to be released. See, they had a way out of the torture. All you have to do is bow the pinch of, you know, burn the pinch of incense to Caesar. All you have to do is just bow before the statue that the emperor set up. All you have to do is get with the program. I know you've got your own morality, but we've got a different morality, and we want you to just admit that ours is okay. See, all of that was going on for these early Christians. And the writer puts it in very careful terms. It's not just that they were tortured and not released. They refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. They said, my choice is embrace Christ and suffer and be tortured and put to death or deny Christ and be released from that suffering, but I've denied Christ. I want the better resurrection. I want true life. And so I will not bend I will not bow, and if it means I burn, I burn. That's the choice that they made. And so God's people must not compromise the faith for the sake of peace with the world. When the world turns on believers, they can be at peace with God, or they can be at peace with the world, but they cannot be at peace with both. Now, we have not had to experience much of this, friends, and let me tell you, i because I have the privilege of serving on the board of International Christian Concern, I get upset when I hear American Christians who don't like a particular law or they don't like something that's coming down, and immediately it's, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're being inconvenienced is what you're being. Persecution, trust me, and it may come to us, you'll know it when it gets here. You'll know what real suffering is. Uh, I visited the martyr, the, the families of the 21 martyrs that ISIS slit their throats on the beach. When you visit those families, when you visit one congregation that is half the size of what we are today, and they had seven men in that one congregation martyred, you'll know what persecution is. And we have not experienced it yet, thanks be to God. But it may come. And when it comes, how do you do it? 
Now, let me be clear. How you do it is not, I'm a prior Marine. I can put up with anything. No, it's not. You remember in Princess Bride where, where Wesley is there and he's about to be tortured by the guy and he says, oh, it's torture. I can take it. And the guy's like, no, you can't. You can't take what's coming your way. Friends, you can't take it unless, unless we do what Hebrews 11 tells us, which is the secret to perseverance is seeing Christ and our eternal reward. Seeing Christ and our eternal reward. Notice what he says about Moses. And I love this because notice Moses saw Christ. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. This is speaking of Moses. As of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. See, Moses could see all the treasures of Egypt. They were all around him. He could touch them. He could taste them. He could feel them. He could experience them. And he turned all of that down for Christ. Why? It's not because Moses was so strong. In fact, we can see places where Moses blows it. It's because he had seen him who was invisible. He had grasped and laid a hold of who Jesus is. He had seen Christ, and we're told he was looking ahead to his reward. So the things that sustain you and me is our vision of God. Please hear me, church. If we do head into darker times and as we move through the next decade, it is going to be a daily experiencing and seeing Christ that is gonna sustain you and me. It is not your courage, it is not your intestinal fortitude that will keep you, it is only seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. What will allow you and me to say, if the price of me being part of this, if the price of me keeping this job, if the price of me being able to participate in the culture is that I have to deny what the Christian faith teaches me, I'll give it up. I would rather be destitute along with the people of God. The only way you'll do that is knowing your eternal reward is greater than whatever you can get here and now. And apart from that, let's be blunt, Prior Marines saying, I'll fold like a house of cards. And so will you. And so will everybody else. Unless we see Christ. So only those who draw close to Christ, experiencing his daily presence and a foretaste of their eternal reward will be empowered to persevere through persecution. And friends, if you go and talk to believers overseas that are really suffering, you find that immensely. When we walked into the church where the seven men had been martyred in Egypt, and we went in there to pray with them, and you got a picture, that means every family in that congregation had lost a father, a son, a brother, an uncle, all of them, none of them were touched. When you walk into their church property, the first thing you see is a big poster of their relatives kneeling on the beach about to have their throat slit. They see it every time they come to worship. They're not morose. On it, it's got the verse in Revelation 6 says they have gained the martyr's crown. And when you talk to them, they say, we're not trying to forget. We are remembering this is real life. 
We are exiles. We are aliens. We are strangers. And this world may come after us, but it can't have my soul. And our sons are now enjoying their reward because ISIS is not stronger than Jesus Christ. Did you hear earlier what, what Tony said? It's not just that God loved you enough to die for you. He has been raised. Christ has conquered death. And if we see him and we know that, then we know whatever trivialities we are offered here are not worth our eternal reward. So how do we apply this before we come to the Lord's table? First thing is we need to respond to the reality of persecution. Today's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I encourage you, you know, we've prayed together today. But friends, I want to ask, are we regularly praying for the persecuted church? If I were a preacher in Nigeria, I would not be talking about what I think might happen over the next decade. I'd be talking about what has been going on. If we were in Iran, we would not be meeting outside like this right now. It would not be possible. As you know, we support underground church planting there. We've heard the stories. It is a completely different world. Are you and I praying for them? The number one thing they ask is that we pray for them every day. The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews 13.3 says this, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. He's not talking in this verse about I'm in prison because I stole something from 7-Eleven. He's talking about people who are being persecuted for their faith. He says, here's what you can do who are still not undergoing that. You can remember them. You can pray for them. So I urge you, it's not easy. I get, every day I get emails regarding the persecuted church. I keep up, when I'm being on the board there, we hear the stories. It's not easy. But friends, it's real. And we need to daily pray for the persecuted church. Cry out to God for them. There are millions that this is their reality. Second, and if you've got more questions, again, you can see Johnny, you can see me, uh, and we can put you in touch with International Christian Concern where you can get lots of information regarding what's going on in the world. Secondly, am I preparing for suffering and persecution by drawing close, close to Christ daily? See, here's the thing. It's, it's too late once, you know, we used to have a saying in the Marine Corps, it's better to sweat in peace than bleed in war. Now's the time to get ready. Not, not once it's hit, now. So am I preparing now? Because only seeing and savoring Christ will sustain me through suffering and persecution. So the only way to persevere in the face of what I think is going to be coming is having our identity rooted in Christ and renewing that identity every day. Day because it's going to be tested. It is going to be challenged. We are on a collision course, make no mistake, with where our culture is going. And this has nothing to do with the outcome of the most recent election. Our culture has been on a path for 50 years now, and it is running directly 
counter crosswise to where we have to stand as believers. Are we preparing for that? So the question, do I draw strength from Christ each day in his word and prayer? Not once in a while. Not when I woke up and I wasn't feeling well, so I thought I ought to get in the word. Not when some crisis comes along. Do I every day wake up and say, oh God, I need your word. I hunger for it more than my daily bread. I need to have you speak to me. I need to see Jesus Christ. Are we developing that habit? Because if we develop it now, it doesn't matter what comes down the road. We're going to have seen Christ. Do I have the habit of meditating upon God's word day and night so that my mind, heart, and will are shaped by the truth? Make no mistake, it it is and is going to continue to be incessant. The world wants to shape you into its image. No matter when you live, where you live. Babylon wants to make you look like a Babylonian. And we have to look like God's exile people. The only way to do that is we have to have our minds so shaped by the Word of God. If you're not looking around at our culture right now and regularly experiencing the sense of what on, in the world are these people thinking? This doesn't even make any sense. This is insane. If you're not experiencing that on a daily basis with the, the moral choices and confusion that is going on in our culture, the way we are living our lives, your mind is not being renewed by the Word of God because we are getting further and further and further away. And it's not just, I'm not, get politics out of your head. I'm talking in the entire way we conduct our lives, the way we live with our families, the the way that money rules and reigns over us, uh, the, the morality that is being pressed upon us every day, where we're being told it doesn't matter what your body is. Your body is just some external thing, not integral to who you are as a person. All of this is insanity. It's a sign of a culture that's lost its mind. But see... Hundreds of millions of people think, that sounds right. And so will you and I, if my mind's not renewed. Then the last thing, and we'll come to the Lord's table. Am I drawing strength through fellowship and through regular worship? See, persecuted Christians always gather. They are always together. We need to be encouraging one another constantly. Another verse in Hebrews, remember Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So here's your practice. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, your first thought should not be, oh God, I don't want to get up. Your first thought should be, is it today? And the answer will be yes. So then your next thought is, that's right. I need to be encouraged by other believers and I need to be encouraging other believers because oddly enough, it's today. That's what the writer's telling you. So I want to challenge you to do that. And again, COVID has made this more difficult, but friends, that doesn't give us a reason to say we can't be part. We need to be encouraging one another every day. And we need to gather regularly for worship. This is why it is so critical for us. Corporate worship instructs our minds, shapes our desires, and fuels our courage to live for God. 
why, again, all these are coming out of the book of Hebrews. Remember the famous verse in Hebrews, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, these are not just random verses. He's saying you're, you're under persecution. You are suffering. The world is trying to do it. You need to encourage one another, and you need to gather together to worship because that's what sustains you. So I urge you, gather in person if at all possible. And if you can't because of COVID and things like that, then participate online and make it absolute premium priority in life because you and I are going to need it. The believers who have stood through the ages are the ones who've done these simple things and prepared ahead of time. Now, what we're going to uh, do is we're going to be coming to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is a foretaste of our eternal reward. So I encourage you to grab your little packet and let's get ready for that. But I want us as we come to the table today to remember that we were told we need to see Christ and we need to, to have this foretaste of our eternal reward. And this is what we get at the Lord's table. Remember, when the new heavens and the new earth come, what, what are we told that we sit down and do with Jesus? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Every time we do this, it's a foretaste of that. It's a pointer to remind us of that. So what we're going to do, if you pull out your booklet, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, we are going to confess the Apostles' Creed together. It's in your booklet there. I forget which page, but let's go ahead and pull the booklet out. And if you can stand with me while we confess this. We've been sitting and it'll give us a chance to stretch it out a little bit. And we're confessing these words because Christians who have suffered and died through the ages have confessed these same words. Christians in Iran and China and Egypt they look different than you and I. They wear different clothing. Some of their worship styles are different, but we all hold this faith in common. So we're going to confess this faith together and then come to the table. So friends, let us confess the faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, I encourage you now to hear Jesus' words of invitation to all who believe in him and confess the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Lord Jesus in Revelation says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright 
morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him, him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. Friends, if you confess and believe that faith, then I invite you this morning to the Lord's table. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, go ahead and open up and have the bread ready, and we will take this bread together. Lord, Bread is a source of life for our physical bodies, nourishing and sustaining us for our years on this earth. But we, in Jesus Christ, have been given the true bread of life, which nourishes and sustains us, body and soul, for this age and the age to come. So we take this bread in faith, believing that Jesus alone is our salvation, knowing that you are more precious than life itself, and looking forward to the day when we will eat with you face to face. Friends, take the bread of life. Lord, in your word you tell us that you have given wine to gladden the heart of man, refreshing us, and filling us with joy as we journey through this life. But in Jesus Christ, we have been given the true cup of life, nourishing and refreshing us body and soul for this age and the age to come. And so we take this cup in faith, believing that the blood of Christ cleanses us from every sin, knowing that it has sealed us as your covenant people, which is better than all the joys this world has to offer. And looking forward to the day when we drink the cup from your hand. Friends, take and drink the cup of life. Holy Spirit, our life is often a veil of tears, for we live in a fallen world, we struggle with sin, and we are aliens and exiles in this world. If it were not for you, Spirit of the living God, we would not be able to persevere. But like the saints of old, who suffered great persecution, and like our suffering brothers and sisters around the globe today, we are not left to our own resources. For you allow us to experience all the good things that are ours in Christ. 
opening our eyes, the eyes of our hearts so that we may behold our Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us of the hope to which we have been called and the riches of the glorious inheritance that awaits us. Spirit of the living God, come upon us in true power today. Give us courage to walk rightly in this corrupt world fearing only our Lord and hating even the faintest whiff of sin and its deceits. We thank you, holy God, for giving us a foretaste of all that awaits us in the resurrection. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And God's covenant people say, Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and we will conclude with a word of benediction. And I remind you again to receive God's blessing by faith. This is out of Psalm chapter 20. May God fasten this to your heart and make this yours in Jesus Christ. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept them. May he give you the desire of your heart so that all you do may succeed. Through Jesus Christ. Friends, go forth blessed and be a blessing in this broken world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.